0: From Chicago, this is Around Comics. I'm Christopher Neisman, and this is a special edition episode. It is my conversation with comics creator Gene Ha. You're listening to Around Comics.
1: And we are joined by Mr. Gene Ha. Gene, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. So uh, it's been a nice day. I just cleaned out my uh, Copic markers by uh, (laughs) using rubbing alcohol, 91% rubbing alcohol to clean the outside of them and the caps and stuff like that so they seal better. But um, because I'm using a spray bottle, I think I might be just a little bit drunk from breathing that in. (laughs) So that is, that, it is the,
0: that is the nerdiest comic book artist <laughs> intro ever. So it was a beautiful <laughs> day. I've been cleaning my copy markers. Yeah, I'm high as a kite. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of jump off here. We we met uh, each other in Chicago. You are you are Chicago and born and bred. But I started uh, reading about you on the on the interwebs a little bit, and I did not know that you spent. Um, was it really kind of your your formative and, and and like high school years in South Bend, Indiana? Oh
1: yeah. How yeah.
0: did how did that happen? And tell me a little bit about, and and I I say this because my in-laws live in South Bend, so I'm there like two or three times a year. So yeah, I want to know a little bit about life growing up in in South Bend,
1: Indiana for Gene Ha. Uh, I grew up, uh, yeah, I grew up in the 70s and 80s inside of South Bend. I was was born in Chicago. My dad was a recently, uh, was a doctor from uh, South Korea, came here because there was a doctor shortage in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, and then later uh, established a practice with some other doctors, uh, American-born doctors, in South Bend, and that's where I grew up. So um, yeah, it was just a incredibly boring <laughs> Rust Belt, t- you know, Rust Belt town that the car factories had all closed a little before I was born. Yeah. So yeah, it's just uh, I don't know. It's just I was also um, at the time in the '70s and '80s, it was. Demographically, the American average, like uh, yes. racial composition was pretty close mm-hmm. to it, uh, economic divide and stuff like that. So it was a place where people would like send free samples in the mail to just random houses to test market things because South Bend, Indiana, very average.
0: Now growing up in in South Bend, you know I imagine you were a comic book fan is I'm guessing at a at a pretty early age um uh, did you have you know comic shops or were you you know the w- was it still kind of the um the convenience store comic book shopping that kind of stuff
1: um i grew well okay so I started off as a comic book fan in the seventies and it was just uh, pretty much uh convenience stores mm-hmm. drug stores i mean uh Books. Off the racks, yeah. yeah. Spinner yeah, racks. Yeah, Drugstore Spinner Rack was my main source for comic books as a little kid. Uh, it was a way to shut us up when we were being noisy or something like that. Um, and it wasn't until uh, the mid-'80s that uh, the first direct market comic shop started opening up mm-hmm. on the really bad parts of town near the abandoned factories and near <laughs> the strip clubs. It was really <laughs> amazing. Comic. comic book, drug dens, and strip clubs. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. The first comic shop owner I remember was uh, he. He looked like a friendlier version of Angar the Screamer. If you've read the Marvel Handbook, <laughs> yes, yeah, uh hippy, skinny hippie with long ponytail, scraggly mm-hmm. beard. Uh, shop. It's, I don't think he had cats, but somehow it still kind of smelled like cat cat piss. So, <laughs> and it was like two shops down from. Uh, i think it was called the peach pit or and the tender trap and there were a bunch of strip clubs nearby which was really amusing for my mom and also um uh the homeless mission wow you had like yeah, the, it, was, it was like the trifecta yeah it was the worst well i shouldn't say the
0: worst part of town but it was a pretty bad part of town mm-hmm. what um you know what was the the stuff that you kind of remember you know it's it's talking to talking to comic book fans that are about you know the same age it's always kind of interesting to to hear what stuff they remember loving and reading and stuff especially from the art side what was the stuff that that you can look back on and say yeah that is really what inspired me to to pick up a a a, a pencil
1: and and a and a notepad oh man um the first biggest one was uh Mike Grell, and I've said hi to him a few mm-hmm. times. Um, and his Green Lantern run and his uh Legion of Superheroes run okay. were just fantastic to me. He was very expressive. Uh, also, Gene Colan, at the same time, they were two Ugh. really super expressive 70s artists at the time. Um, they just their stuff just jumped out at me in a way other artists didn't. So, um, you're what reading like Tomb of Dracula? Would that have been about the um, no, it was
0: actually. Daredevil. It was his Daredevil It was Daredevil. Out. Well, that's his, like, 60s stuff. So you were
1: going back even at oh, that no. point. But he was still doing some stuff in the 70s. In was the, he? Okay. Yeah. And uh, the funny thing is that I remember the issue where a uh, new artist took over, and I thought, oh, this is crap. I do not like this artist at all. <laughs> this Frank Miller guy is going nowhere. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. he was not frank miller yet but no uh, it's uh yeah. I, years I, later i totally forgot about that and i saw the frank miller stuff like who the hell is this guy he's brilliant
0: that's funny because um yeah. you you pick up the uh the now the, the the omnibus of the frank miller daredevil stuff and he came in as as the artist and i forget who was writing but he didn't start he didn't start doing writing and art duties for for several issues and you know, I remember going back and and reading that stuff, and, and really, whenever he started writing, that's when that book became like next level. And I still that's one of the that's one of the few books from that era that I go back almost annually, and I'll read Frank Miller's Daredevil Run, and it for for whatever reason I think it still holds up really well.
1: Oh, yeah. Though I should note, uh, I can't remember the writer's name now because at the time I didn't pay attention to writers, but the Gene Colan run mm-hmm. could often be incredibly dark and complex. Uh, and I remember one issue where uh, Daredevil went insane, rambled in, kind of almost he looked drunk or something like that, just rambled into the Avengers mansion <laughs> where uh, the team members of the time were Black Widow, Hercules, the Beast, uh, and Captain America. And he just kicked everybody's ass somehow. <laughs> and then he screamed i'm in pain or something like that and then collapsed on the ground they had to take him to an emergency room and i had never read a dark dark comic book before or it you know
0: it was and- wow you look back at that era and it was like the low selling titles that they had like <laughs> even like x men at the time which was which was kind of a sales dog they took a lot of chances and they got dark in some of that stuff
1: oh yeah and the thing is uh, the the Frank Miller run when he took over from that. It was the same writer and he he kind of took on a lot of the tricks from Gene Colan for that kind of dark, moody feel. But I just didn't like how he handled it at first. I thought he was just kind of a bad Gene Colan. I mean, a lot of people I love. I think they're hacks who are copying somebody else and then they... (laughs) get their own voice and i later to rediscover them and think i've never noticed this person before he's brilliant who is this uh david Matthew kelly guy (laughs) oh wait a minute he's the guy i didn't like a few years ago Uh uh-huh yeah he he ended up being okay (laughs)
0: yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, he did he did all right so yeah i mean so so colin was a bit i you know i can kind of see the the gene colin influence a little bit you know i look at i look at your art and it's it's evolved a lot you know kind of well, as it should. I mean, you've been doing this for professionally for twenty something years now. Is it twenty? Um, God, it's more than that. When did when did <laughs> you're
1: mid nineties? I started in nineteen ninety two. Wow. Uh, okay. And the first I started off in the spring of nineteen ninety two. And then uh my first comic book came out uh in December of ninety two, but it was dated for I think January, February ninety three because they have the weird dating system they had back then.
0: You are I mean, you are getting close to that grizzled veteran status. Right?
1: I, I I I no, no, I am not close. I am over the line, man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what was your what was your first published work?
1: Uh oh, uh it was Green Lantern number thirty six uh okay That's so, hilarious. You know, that,
0: that, that yeah. i mean that that shows you right there it's like nobody comes into the <laughs> industry right now and says oh what's the first book uh yeah I'm, uh, they're gonna throw me on green lantern
1: we'll be back after a quick break do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process their path to publication and of course their newest novels Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, bestselling author of the Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer Podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Podcast. oh yeah yeah i mean well yeah there there wasn't the giant online market of artists and stuff like that yeah but uh just just as an example uh tim seeley first met me when he was a teenage fanboy coming to chicago comic conventions (laughs) and i would make free sketches for him if he did uh stunts and stuff like that and challenges like singing uh singing stupid superhero theme songs or something like that at the top of his lungs which he did yeah and now he's (laughs) he's He's on the verge of becoming a grizzled vet- veteran now. I am. Oh, Sealy is completely
0: a grizzled veteran. Yeah,
1: and I am. Yeah, I am that many years older than him you're one
0: of those artists that you know I think that you can remember meeting meeting artists that you really looked up to you know earlier in your career and it's like and you are that guy now for a lot of for a lot of artists uh, aspiring or even really you know established um you know so that's is there was there ever a sense of like you know passing of torch to say hey you know what I'm 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 one of those people. I have advice and and information to pass on to these to this new group of, of creators. Was there ever a moment that that crystallized that that was something that 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 you should or could do?
1: I I guess I don't try to look for things to kind of like elevate myself, but I do have moments mm-hmm. where I can pass on a small bit of I mean there's just constant things where you just talk you chat with anybody who's either either older than you or younger than you or even your heroes. And you'll often end up with situations where you'll be trading advice with each other. And it's, uh, I mean, oh, God. But, yeah, if, I guess another thing, it's important thing is that I, the thing I find most annoying in the world are people who are constantly fighting to climb up a hierarchy and get, get one up on status. Sure. I, I try never to do that. You've always um, you've always struck me as being very, very humble that way. Um well, do I, do you it's find not, now it's not even humble. I just don't even it's not even a, a goal of mine. I sure. just don't see the I don't see the point. It seems like a lot of bother to be an ass, uh, you know, to be a jerk, <laughs> to kinda, you know. to feel like you're you know at at least i crushed that person therefore i feel better about myself sure
0: do you see you know and you're on social media you you do you do those things as as creators kind of have to do these days um is, is social media is it is it something that you enjoy as part of your professional life is it an annoyance is it something that that you you know that you you're you're happy to do or would you would you prefer for it not to be something to 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 take
1: up time in your day oh man Uh oh i sometimes i feel sometimes it's kind of a thing where like like you're going if you're going to a a convention or something you feel like oh all these people are are have made me a guest of this show and they're being really nice to me and I owe it to them to say, I'm going to the show and letting people know I'll be there. And it is it is kind of work. And it, sometimes it feels like you're tooting your own horn or stuff like that mm-hmm, or, you know, sure. your own book. You are proud of it. You want people to know about it. And it's I, I'm trying to promote the work, not me, like any book I've worked on where I'm proud of it. Um, I try to make it about the book and, and not, you know, not saying, hey, I'm great. Therefore, love me and buy everything I do. But, well, you
0: know. there, yeah. There's a certain there's a certain amount of hype machine that has yeah. to go on out there. It's you know, especially yeah. <clears throat> especially whenever you're doing creator owned work, and and we can talk about May for you know for a little bit here. Um, not only is it a creator owned book, but it, it got its start on Kickstarter, which that that. Requires a a lot of hype machine out there, and and it's it's a you know it's an online crowdsourced way of producing a a comic and anything online. I mean, the backbone of that is gonna be is gonna be spreading the the word and 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 getting out on social media. What was your initial experience with
1: with Kickstarter? Yeah, um, well, okay, I've only done one Kickstarter. I don't. Plan on doing it again. <laughs> uh, I mean, if I get to the point where I do something like, uh, oh, uh, speaking of passing on the torch, I am blown away by the work of someone who draws totally different than me and writes different than me, Katie Cook. Oh, uh, Katie's does, awesome. Uh, nothing. Yeah, does nothing special on uh, line webtoon. Um, yeah. So if I do, uh, if I do a, ever do a web comic and then want to sell the collection, I might do a Kickstarter. But otherwise, I'm probably okay. not going to do it. Okay. But um, what I learned from the first time is just, um, first. And this is true of everything on online social media, or frankly, just dealing with the public, just selling a book at a convention. Try to figure out what the other person wants. And sometimes what they want is not what you're selling. Mm-hmm. So don't worry about it. But just, it's I compare it to uh, like sharing something on social media, sharing word of something on social media, as uh, someone buying a t shirt and wearing it. You're going re- to share a post or, uh, or t- retweet something if it says something about you to retweet it, like I believe in this or this is funny and express my mm-hmm. personality, you don't like if someone posts something, if I, if an artist posts something beautiful on Twitter or Instagram, or whatever, uh, people don't share it because it's beautiful. They share it because it's beautiful to them. And it says something about them. Just like wearing a t-shirt set. You wear a t-shirt. Don't just wear the most beautiful t-shirt. You wear a t-shirt that says something about who you are. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, um, Yeah, just if you always keep it outward focused uh, and just focused on what that, trying to provide for people what they need, that's when you get to something true. Um, I guess the other thing is also, uh, okay, okay, here's a bit of advice I always give to artists in any field trying to figure out what they should be doing and what they should be doing next. Um, Think of, the piece of art, whether it's a novel or a t-shirt or a comic book, that you wish you could buy, that you can't. When mm-hmm. you figure out the one that you can't buy, that's the thing you need to make. The thing that you desperately would pay almost any amount of money just to own. And even if it doesn't do well, if you do if you do it with all of your skill and all, of, and do it the way you believe in, you're at least going to have something that you love and hopefully a decent number of people will love, even if it doesn't go on forever. Is that, is that what May is for you? Yeah. And th- if you look at any breakout hit that kind of changed comics or changed any art form, it's always someone doing that. And sure. it, sometimes just, you know, millions of people will realize, oh, I didn't even know this is something I needed, but it's really what I needed because they had that same desire, but they just couldn't define it the way an artist can. I
0: like that. That's um, well. Since we've since we've mentioned May a couple times, um, can you go ahead um, give us the give us a rundown of the book, the the brief history
1: of it, and and what's coming up in the near future here? Okay. Um. So, uh, May is a book I launched in Kickstarter, and now it's coming out through uh, Lion Forge Oni Press. It Started off with the first mm-hmm. two oversized issues worth on Kickstarter, uh, and that was my crazy uh, self promotion. Uh, self-publishing adventure which was so much work um that's another reason i never <laughs> want to do it again because this is a common theme
0: i've heard on kickstarter it's like love doing it boy it's a lot of work
1: yeah you i wanted to nail down every detail and if someone if i miss something or something like that i was going to do what i can uh, the book itself is um it's a combination of a lot of things that I really loved. Like, uh, in a sense, it's fan fiction of Kyle Baker's uh, Why I uh, Why I Hate Saturn, which <laughs> okay. is a relatively realistic non-fantasy story about two sisters, but one of them is probably deluded because she probably isn't, as she claims, the queen of the leather Astro Girls uh, of Saturn. And then I just began playing with that as kind of a fan fiction in my head uh, early on in my career. And it slowly, over time, morphed into something else where um, instead of being an astro girl or a space girl, one of the sisters turned into... I put a jacket on one of the sisters and my version of one of the sisters. And I realized, oh, this isn't a space fantasy anymore or a space opera. This is something else. And that slowly morphed into the world that I turned to May. Um, the other thing is that uh, the I thought the astronaut or the, no, the um, historical fantasy... Fantasy type character was the the main character of the book, and then I realized, oh no, she actually doesn't have a lot of uh, emotional growth to do or anything like that, or dramatic growth to do. The more interesting character dramatically is actually the younger sister, and then I began building on that, and this kind of nerdy younger sister became the main character. And I began researching it at the time around 2012-2013 when I began really crystallizing all these ideas. And I had trouble finding pop culture nerd girl characters who were the main character. Uh, mm-hmm, back sure. then. Yeah. Back then they were generally the person speaking over the hero's headset saying, Now we need to turn left here. Now cut the red <laughs> wire. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was all the, the Oracle, you
0: know yeah. character.
1: And oh yeah. The other big trope is uh, nerd girls who uh, have a boy walk up to them, take off their glasses, and say, Oh my god. You're beautiful. You're not a nerd. And the girl saying, oh, thank God I'm not a nerd. Oh, mm-hmm. I can be popular finally. I'll never have to nerd again. Thank you. Thank you for noticing. Yeah, and I wanted May to be a hero because she's a nerd, and that. That's her essential character. That's why she's great, not as something that she's trying to fix.
0: To sidetrack a little bit here, and I was going to ask you that, kind of going back to um, you being the, the grizzled veteran in the industry that you are now, I mean that's got to be one of the biggest changes that we've seen in comics is people waving that nerd banner proudly you know and it's you know it's been like that for 10 15 years now that you know people are proud of their nerddom what was i mean the difference between going to a a a trade show uh or a comic book convention now versus 25 years ago i mean what's it like for you it's like all my
1: fantasies about what comic books would become Mm -hmm. have pretty much come true at this point where it's just um like i mean uh, do you ever read uh uh a Brian Hibbs' annual reports on the comic book industry. Sure, yeah. Yeah, those were staples forever. Yeah, so uh, for those who don't know, he's the owner of uh, Comics Experience in San Francisco, a great comic shop, uh, one of the savviest retailers in the industry. And for the last few years, he's been reporting about how um, the bookstore graphic novel market has been overtaking the direct market in this DC Mm -hmm. and Marvel superhero um, graphic novel market by leaps and bounds. And so now Marvel and DC are kind of uh, maybe... A little under a third of the industry, and over two thirds are now uh, companies like Scholastic, uh, Macmillan, um, uh, PaperCuts, just all these publishers that focus on kids. And the average comic book reader in the United States now is not um, a forty-year-old Asian or white (laughs) middle-aged Rodnar like me. Uh It's uh, boys and girls, uh, teenagers, all races, you know, uh, LGBTQ. Just Everybody who's young—it's every—it's
0: like, everything that we as comic book fans ever wanted to happen, and yeah. it shocks me how much resistance
1: there is to that happening. Oh yeah, and yeah, it's 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 a bit like the the you know the spies uh you know the CIA agents who like won the Cold War and it's kind of like just accept it—you've won. Yeah, and they're like, like, oh, why can't we go back the to the Cold War? It was so fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. It, yeah, this is, it's such, it's such a beautiful th- world we're living in right now. And I'm going to say part of the reason it wasn't obvious when I started like really plotting out doing, you know, really committing myself to doing May around 2013 that this is where things were going. But now at this point, it's just gigantic. Just the force of graphic novels and schools and libraries and stuff like that. That's the big place where people are learning about comics. I'm going to say, I mean, I wanted to be part of the change or to help, the change that happened anyway, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say, the changes have been so big. The big titles have been so big. I mean, it would have happened, hugely happened without me and stuff like that. It's just, it's amazing seeing just this flowering of brilliant new stuff. Um, good lord, it's just. But <laughs> well, you know, I, I look at. What at, an age. at you
0: know at at team may if you go to to com, and there's the there's the the team and that's you know first of all that's amazing that i mean it this is your book but you have so many people that are involved in this and and it's it's kind of amazing the group of people that you've put together to to produce this book and it's it's a pretty diverse group of people. Talk a little bit more about uh, about the team that you have working
1: on May. Uh, okay, so there's the core team, which is uh, me, uh, my letterer, Xander Cannon, my colorist, uh, Wes, Wes Flo, Hartman out of Texas, uh, and then just been a variety of people who've helped out on it and various things. Uh, yeah, just go to genehaw.com, click the Team May link, uh, and just, oh man, uh, I'm just going to say like, uh, Polina show who's uh, gone on to just become bigger and bigger since she's done my thing. Uh, yeah, she just did. She did Chapter Six. Uh, and the art was totally different than mine, but just brilliant in ways that I can't. I mean, I like bringing people on board who are brilliant who do things like differently than me. And it's not just a style thing. It's just like if you see the world differently, that's where you get mm-hmm. real. That's where real style comes from. I was um, that you have Xander is is doing letters. Oh yeah, and I, I, <laughs> my art is so tight. Both in, uh, I supervise coloring and I do little tweaks here and there on the mm-hmm. coloring to make it look like my style to match. I color the first two issues, therefore I have to tweak the mm-hmm. rest of the chapter so it matches the style. But um, so my style can be so tight in drawing and coloring that some people assume it's CGI and it's just hand drawn. It may be hand drawn on a computer, and it's hand colored in Photoshop. It's all 2D work. There's no CGI stuff, except for occasionally using 3D stuff for um, draw cars. But
0: well, I, well I, you you kind of make that yeah. clear on the on the the homepage. You've got your you've got your 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 breakdown, and then your kind of rough sketch, um, blue lining, inking, yeah. and flats, and then finished colors. And so it, it's for people that that don't know how comics come together visually it's kind of a really nice visual image to say this is how you build up uh, a, a, a comic kind of from you know the the initial layouts all the way to to, to finish work it was I, I really I, I like that graphic a lot it's it, it's cool Thanks, um, um
1: just let me mm-hmm. say uh, really quick on Xander is mm-hmm. just that I love how loose uh Xander's lettering is because it contrasts nicely with the art and just gives mm-hmm. it that kind of I made this for you feel to it.
0: Nice, nice. Well, you've been working with Xander for a long time. You guys, I mean, that th- you got a couple decades of, of collaboration with him at this point, don't you?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we started working together, I think, in uh, uh, 1998, or maybe it was 1999. Um, yeah. But we'd actually met a few years before then at a random store signing, and uh, he's he's been a great teacher to me in just that uh, I started off as a penciler and then later, pencil or inker at DC and Marvel, but I hadn't done anything else in the whole process like coloring, lettering, writing and stuff like that. And getting to work on top 10 with him because he'd done every job, self-publishing uh, replacement God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He was able to analyze, uh, do layouts for and analyze the um, Alan Moore scripts in a way that I couldn't. And he could say, Oh, here's what Alan Moore's trying to do with the writing here. Here's why he's describing things in this way and structuring things this way. And it allowed him to do layouts and, just see things in the script that i couldn't which i didn't it's it's it was a bit like the you know the one i i don't know it's just he, ta- it, he taught me so much he's just one of the best teachers i ever had that's cool it's
0: you know i always um um i've never talked to alan moore i mean he's my white whale um, but I, but i've you know it's i i've I've done a lot of like you know six degrees of of Kevin bacon and talked to a lot of a lot of artists that have worked with him i mean we've got you know hillary uh Barta right there in in Chicago as well you know Hillary worked uh, on the splash brandigan stuff with with alan moore what um what was that experience like
1: uh he is literally the fastest mo- creative mind I've ever met where um I can at least kind of keep up and keep pace – with every other person i've ever traded ideas with except alan moore he's just he's just too creative he's just too smart (laughs) i can i can and top 10 so we talked uh, about
0: books holding up the the frank miller daredevil run i was reading top 10 last week and it's still awesome and looks looks beautiful um it's uh you know it's looking at at your art from top 10 and then kind of following stuff that you've done, um, you know, in the, in the years subsequent um, your, your style, you know, you can always kind of tell a a Gene Haw piece of work, but your style has changed a lot. The path that your that your art has taken over your career and stuff that you've um, either consciously wanted to change or things that kind of happened even without thinking about it.
1: Uh, I mean, the best way to put it is that um, I've always been in love with kind of uh, the beauty of the world around me, visually, and just the little subtle, just subtle details, just strike me as very beautiful. And when I draw them, you can see me just focusing on just like a little upturn or change of the plane in the face, or something like that, mm-hmm. or um, the way a jacket will wrinkle, or something like. That. I just these details are incredibly beautiful to me, and I want, I don't want to include every detail in the world, but the ones I do love, I do want to include. And it's hard to do that in harsh black and white because some of them are very subtle. So it's just been this battle between me and the technology of how comics were being being made at any time period uh, so I can get those details in. So uh, I started off trying to do cross-hatching for very, in a very subtle way with very specific values, not making it too harsh when I didn't want it harsh unless I wanted it to. And then the inkers didn't always get it, so therefore I took over the inking. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, forgive me, uh, experienced colorist guys out there, but uh, the 90s were the dark ages of American comic book coloring. Oh, I mean, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there was a lot of technology that, you know, it's like, let's try this Photoshop filter. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if if you are a colorist from that time period who survived till now, it's pretty obvious either you got incredibly good or you're one of the brilliant ones back then who used it right. Yeah. So yeah. So there's then me trying to take over a little bit of the coloring as soon as I got myself a copy of Photoshop, and that it, just, it became so labor-intensive doing this. I began experimenting with other things like uh, using markers to do my own color guides, mm-hmm. uh, doing ink wash on Top Ten, the Top Ten prequel, uh, Top Ten the 49ers. Um, on May, I uh, first two chapters, I just colored everything myself because I just thought I want to get my full vision onto the page. And now I'm going into another experiment, which I can – I'll send you a file after we finish up the interview. Okay. Uh, But it's also um, one of the uh, postscript uh, shorts inside of May Volume 2 where I'm using – I'm doing a duotone inside of uh, Procreate on iPad. And I'm using this to kind of – so that way in the, the medium color, the kind of light brown color, I'm using that to do the shading. And then I have uh, the black ink stuff for doing the harsh shadows and the outlines and stuff like that. And I feel like I'm finally do- found a simple way to get my vision across. And that's where I'm going to be going next, trying to see if I can do that with a colorist for full color books and stuff like that. Saying use this as like a, uh, I believe in anime they call it cell shading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, use it like a cell shading guide, and then you just have to figure out exactly what to do with the colors and the exact values of it where I want I put the shadows. And. Uh, Hopefully it all works elegantly, but we, I don't know yet. That's
0: that's neat. You know, I, I look at I look at your work, <laughs> and one of the things I, I loved from from your early work is you had, um, I guess the the best way to to say it, you had a very delicate style. Um, but there's certainly um, that that feeling there is like an organic like fullness to your art now, it, it, yeah. if that means anything.
1: Oh no, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the, the vision in my head has been. Pretty consistent throughout my whole 27 years in comics, mm-hmm. and it's just yeah, trying to figure out new, trying to use the latest technologies and techniques to just get it onto the page without break, literally breaking my wrist and not getting you know carpal tunnel and breaking every deadline too horrible. <laughs> sure. It's just, yeah, it's just, uh, oh. well, well, there, oh, there was, where,
0: oh. there was a time whenever, um, I remember you started doing a lot of marker work and was that just kind of something to, to get away from pen and ink or had you always worked in markers? Cause I, 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 I remember seeing you at, at a couple, at a couple shows where I was like, wow, he's doing everything in marker at this show and it is stunning. Uh, was that something, what was it, was it new to you or just something that you, that you pulled out of the toolbox?
1: Oh, uh, in my art school, the uh, Center for Creative Studies in Detroit, uh, we learned how to do storyboards and marker uh, roughs before. And our, because our school was late getting computers compared to every other art school in the nation. Um, <laughs> so I, it, I was kind of used to it, but I, was, I learned a little bit extra along the way and stuff like that. And I can do things now with marker that I could not do 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but yeah, it was just a way of getting away from i at my, I came into the marker phase where I was doing things like uh the Starman work mm-hmm. and uh, as I was leaving behind my super tight cross hatching work and I was pretty much the second uh tightest cross hatcher in the industry at the time uh right behind oh I can't remember his name right now uh it start, name starts with a g he's brilliant but um, Jeff Darrow <laughs> not jeff Darrow this guy who, he did uh all these beautiful kind of uh um it looked like franklin booth type illustrations. Mm-hmm. But a little tighter than Franklin Booth. Um, but anyway, I was uh, – yeah, essentially I was just getting as tight as the rendering on, say, like a $1 bill or something like that. Okay, yeah, wow. And I realized uh, my hands are starting to shake and they're starting to hurt. <laughs> my eyes are hurting and I can't make deadlines doing this style. I need to figure out another way to express the, subtle, the subtleties of the figure that I want to get across in the planes of the figure without killing myself this way
0: yeah it's 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 just been interesting to me and it's one of the things that i love about the medium in general is how different artists are are able to you know approach their styles and communicate with with line and yours has has you know from what i've seen um gone from being this very uh deliberate delicate beautiful line but but now in your later work you are um communicating more with less but it's still it's still obviously gene ha's work
1: yeah well i mean when i talk about um true style coming from how you see the world though for a while there okay i am convinced that the greatest living uh comics artist is uh bill watterson okay he invented the uh, Sin City style a few years before Frank Miller did. In really? His, uh, yeah. Look look at the Tracer bullet strips. The first ones came out. It's the full-fledged Sin City style. But it came out years before Sin City. I will look that up.
0: So you're telling me that, that Frank Miller aped
1: Bill Watterson. For, I, I have no reason to believe that. I have no way, way of knowing and, or even reason for believing that Frank Miller ever read a Calvin and Hobbes strip. So for all I know, he came up with it on his own. But here's the thing. Bill Watterson is just this genius, like an almost curve-level genius. Level genius. Constantly, he constantly came up with these brilliant ideas. His, um, and I tried aping some of his stylistic stuff. like He, his, uh, he did a relatively realistic super, muscular superhero uh, scenes when Calvin was pretending to be a superhero with mm-hmm. rippled muscles and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, these are perfect and beautiful. I love this so much. And it was the biggest stylistic failure of my life because fundamentally I do not see the way the world the way Bill Watterson does. It doesn't work.
0: It always surprises me how many comic book creators don't go back to comics, you know, comic books and say, Oh, it was, you know, it was Kirby or Byrne or or whoever. There are so many strip fans out there. Um, uh, Chris Somney, Andy Parks, those guys will talk about about uh, comic strips the, the as long as you want. Um, you know, so much, so much inspiration for them came out of out of comic strips. And it sounds like Calvin Hobbes was a big inspiration for you. Were, were other were other strips a
1: part of that? The thing is, I mean, there's so many. The people I admired most in uh newspaper comic strips tended to be uh. People who don't see the, who's I, I can't see the world the way they do. So therefore, mm-hmm. I can't I love them. I just can't copy them. Okay, um, I mean like like a big influ- an odd big influence for me is the uh, Asterix comics by uh, Gus mm-hmm. sure. and uh, and Uderzo, um, and they kind despite being very cartoony, they do kind of see the world the way I do. And if you look at the way they did uh, line and combined it with watercolor, that's not too far off from how I do it inside of May. But then if you get to something like, uh, well, I mean, Darwin Cook, just on a fundamental level, I don't see the world graphically the way he does, and no. I want to throw in the middle-range tones and stuff like that. And if you oh, – actually, this is a really good experiment. When I will send you this file, the files for that two-page uh, mm-hmm. postscript story from May Volume 2, uh, and you can just post it on your website. Okay. Compare that to some pages from Darwin Cook's um, – Oh, um, Parker series. Ah, uh, yes. And it's the same concept of uh, medium-colored uh, background paper, uh, a medium ink on top of that, and then black ink on top of that. Mm-hmm. Which and is the brilliant. Effect, yeah. It's the same technique, but the effect is com- completely different because we do not see the world the same way
0: (laughs) yeah it's i i love how you look at it that way as 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 framing framing people's art as how they look at the world and it's uh it's it, it makes all the sense in the world is is you're putting you're putting your visual world down onto paper
1: oh yeah and one of the most painful things in the world for me to do is to look at the work of an artist who's copying somebody else's style but doesn't understand how that artist sees the world but just has aped the surface line and rendering techniques and stuff like that you know I'm. Um, and when it doesn't work it really doesn't work sure uh, it's it's like when people think that like oh god i'm, I'm just gonna use a, the example of my favorite hero from the superhero comic book world Bill and Cabbage. he started off mm-hmm. as the second best neil adams in the world <laughs> yeah, back in the moon night days yeah. Yeah, and sure. He was he was already brilliant. But it wasn't until he began drawing the way he sees the world that he went from being a talented artist to being a genius. Yeah, he was and... he was he was like um, uh, he was a house style guy almost. Yeah. Yeah. And just uh it's his stuff is <laughs> everything he does. I mean, you know, there's no way an Alex Ross could cop could draw draw the way that Bill Sienkiewicz does. Yeah. I mean, he could copy it and apply it to one of his paintings but in a fundamental level it would he, it, it's not the same understanding it would no, just be a surface no. copy
0: well, we've talked about some some of the uh, the greats, and as we get ready to wrap up here uh, in just a couple minutes, um, any I, I know that you always kind of have your your thumb on the pulse of what's going on. Who are some of the the newer names out there? Uh, and I ask selfishly because I'm always looking for new stuff to check out. Who are some of the people that are exciting you, um, art, writing, both?
1: Uh, let me just uh, okay. I'm gonna say the uh, the thing that's kind of most blowing me away now is uh, Faith Aaron Hicks's evolution. Where, um, if you look at her early stuff, or even like uh, something relatively recent, like the Adventures of Superhero Girl, mm-hmm. uh, she was very cartoony, kind of uh pop pop arty, and then she did something recently where it was influenced by uh Avatar the Airbender guy, uh, character, called uh the Nameless City, uh, and it's a, kind of an historical fiction set in a fictional version of a Chinese empire, uh, and it just, it just blew me away because. Just every, it's not cartoony anymore, it's not tight, but it's beautifully rendered, uh, epic cityscapes, uh, perfect, perfect costume designs where there's a bunch of, it's a multicultural empire, and every culture, subculture, culture and subculture has its own national dress. And the storytelling is just brilliant because she's telling a story about uh, ethnic clashes inside of a multicultural nation or empire. But she's telling it from the viewpoint of teenage kids in this empire. So the main character is the son of a teenage son of a general, and they'll, he'll like walk by a room where a big meeting is taking place, or someone's plotting a coup, and he'll like listen in for a second, and the reader will be able to realize, oh boy, yeah, that something big's about to drop there, and the kids just like boring old grown ups and then walk away, and it's like it's it's a lot like it's the brilliance of The West Wing in a way with their talk and walks. Okay except one of the talking walkers is a kid who's not paying attention. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then he suddenly realizes he has to pay attention. And it's just, it's one of the best political comic books I've ever read. It's um, a design, uh, just a, a masterpiece of design in every way and storytelling and stuff like that. It's brilliant, brilliant work. I, I it is on the list. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and this is going to sound, uh, I'm going to name two more things. Uh, and they're going to be really obvious, but just in case people haven't heard of them, uh, one is, I know a lot. I keep on meeting retailers and even a lot of comics pros who have no idea that the biggest selling comic book creator in America by now, now by far, is Raina Telgemeier. Uh, and just t- if you're out there and you want to understand what the comics market is now, ask your local public librarian who Raina Telgemeier is, and she will, st- he or she will start gushing. Or if you talk to a middle schooler who likes comics, uh, oh God, yeah, just she has changed the industry starting in 2007. The reason why things are different now is because she came out with a book called Smile and started off as a webcomic, free online. Um, Oh, uh, actually, I'm going to name two more things. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're spreading the gospel, Gene. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I love Mike Mahack's Cleopatra's Face, which is. It starts off as goofy as it sounds. Of Yes, it is the historical Cleopatra sucked into a far future in space and going to a uh, space cadet school there. But it gets deeper and more complex as it goes along. Uh, oh, God. Uh, I already mentioned Katie Cook's Nothing Special. And finally, if you're a fan of Top Ten and you love the writing on it, I will mention that Alan Moore is a fan of the writing of Xander Cannon mm-hmm. on his book Kaiju Max. And it's as powerful and it's dark and it's hilarious as Top Ten. If you want that writing, uh, you know, heroin injection into your arm again, he's your dealer. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Gene, go ahead. Give us the, uh, uh, the quick wrap-up
0: on May, um, where to get it, when to get it, how to get it, all that good stuff.
1: Volume 1 is already out, and on September 18th at your local comic shop. You can get May Volume 2. If they don't have it in stock, just ask them to order it from Diamond. And if you're a little more patient, uh, it will be available in bookstores on October 1st. And once again, if it's not there, ask them to order a copy from Lion Forge. That's awesome. Well, Gene, it is always
0: awesome to talk with you. Thank you so much for uh, for sitting in and uh, and and chatting about all things comics. Um, uh, best of luck with May. I can't wait to uh, to go to my local comic shop and pick it up.
1: I'm excited for you to read it, man.
0: And once again, a huge thank you to Gene Ha for sitting in and talking with us, not just about May, which Volume 2 will be available uh, directly after uh, we release this episode and go back and get May Volume 1 as well. Uh, He talked about those, but also talking about uh, his history in the industry, and as always, if you know Gene, uh, spreading the gospel about all the different uh, creators and different comics out there that he loves. So, uh, so we uh, really enjoyed talking with Gene. This is the first creator interview since we brought Around Comics back. If you enjoyed this, and I hope you did, you can email us at info at You can also uh, check us out on Facebook. Leave a comment there when the episode releases. And, uh, and if you like this, you can always request more. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in probably the next week or two with the full cast of characters. In the meantime, in between time, we'll be everywhere in and around comics.